Hello, content world. Today, we are taking a bit of a different angle to the content industry, and I am chatting with Donna Dror, GM of SimilarWeb North America. SimilarWeb is one of the world's biggest web analytics platforms, and Donna is giving us a behind-the-scenes look at how it all works and how they're helping both brands and content creators optimize their performance. I hope you enjoy the show. This is the Thought Leaders Podcast. Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to our kick-ass team here at Thought Leaders. As always, I love bringing you guys the best and brightest content creators to hear their stories. But that is just the beginning of what we do here at Thought Leaders. Our amazing team of analysts are bringing you data-backed insights on the latest industry trends in our Thought Leaders weekly newsletter. We're shipping our best work out to you directly every Thursday for free. So check it out at thoughtleaders.io slash newsletter to subscribe. That's thoughtleaders.io slash newsletter. This is the Thought Leaders Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Thought Leaders Podcast. And today... I am super excited to introduce to you someone who is a pioneer in one of the most important websites out there, if not the most important website out there, uh, when it comes to marketing and digital intelligence and everything pretty much that is going on on the internet in the advertising and marketing world. Um, So everyone, um, we're going to start and have a great time today. Okay. So. I am sitting down with uh, Donna Dror. How are you doing, Donna? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Okay, awesome. So now that we got the sorry about that. Now that we got the uh, introduction out of the way, I would love if you can tell our listeners um, who you are and who are you working for currently. Um, sure. Uh, So thank you for the kind introduction. Uh, My name is Donna Dror. I'm the general manager of North America at uh, SimilarWeb. Um, Hopefully whoever's listening has heard of us, but for those who haven't, we measure the digital world. Um, That's the easiest way to describe us in a sentence. We empower companies uh, with the data that they need to make the... Uh, decisions they need to drive their businesses forward across a multitude of industries and use cases. Awesome. Um, so when you say measure the digital world, what exactly is uh, SimilarWeb doing today? Why is it so important? Uh, sure. So I think that the easiest way to describe it for those less familiar is the ability to see the analytics of any company in the world. And this can be leveraged for a multitude of use cases. So from a marketing perspective, um, I will have the ability to measure myself versus the competition because I'll be able to see my own analytics versus theirs, both on a one-to-one ratio, but also from a higher level industry view. This is important because it helps to contextualize performance. If I look at my own data and I see that I grew 10% quarter over quarter, I might think that's a good thing. But if the industry grew by 30% and my top two competitors uh, grew by an average of call it 20 to 30 as well, I've actually lost market share. 
The only way for me to contextualize my own performance is by having access to market intelligence like the type of data SimilarWeb offers. Uh, I reference that back to the marketing use case because after contextualizing your performance and understanding your share of the market, you're going to want to do something about that. And uh, SimilarWeb can get very granular into the insights needed to execute on that be it from an SEO, SEM, affiliate, uh, content, display, whatever channel that makes up your website's DNA, SimilarWeb can provide the insight needed to take action and um, improve that performance that we were referencing. And that's only one use case. Uh, salespeople can use SimilarWeb to uh, be more consultative in how they approach the businesses they're trying to sell to. The investor community has for many years been leveraging market intelligence to try and better predict the stock market or from a private side, better understand uh, potential investments opportunities and conduct digital due diligence. There are fraud control use cases uh, that have been fascinating to uncover and see um, different non-profits and organizations leverage this type of data for. Um, Basically, you know, data is the foundation and part of what we try to do is help um, amplify from the point from that foundational point uh, how the data can be leveraged for the different use cases and as mentioned across many, many industries. Okay, wow. Uh, that is a lot to digest, and that's a very good thing. Uh, so what it sounds like, and I, uh, those who know me, I'm not the biggest tech guy in the world, uh, but what it sounds like is you are doing um google analytics but for other people's websites am i correct with that statement uh yeah that's that's that used to be kind of our elevator pitch i think that okay, we, <laughs> okay that's good elevator pitches are great for podcasts, yeah, by the way that's what you want okay yeah it's true um I think that Google Analytics for any website in the world is a great way to encapsulate in a sentence what it is SimilarWeb can do I think we're, I'm a bit wary of that old elevator pitch or tagline mm -hmm. yeah. because um, of the difference in methodologies as it relates to first part party measurement, third party measurement, um, and the implications from that. I also think that it can get in the way of some of the other use cases that I was talking about. I think that salespeople hear Google Analytics and think, oh, not for me, it doesn't cover my use case. And a broader term like market intelligence can help. Um, so short answer is yes, that's a great description. Longer answer, you know, and then some. <laughs> okay. Um, so one, you know, speaking of Google, Google Analytics. Um, so again, you guys are pretty much tracking um, the traffic, correct, uh, of websites on the internet, right? Yes, we can show the traffic for any website that it is that you're looking to analyze. Okay, and why is that so important? Um, because maybe for people who don't understand, I understand it, um, and I know you do as well, why that's such a big thing to be ranked high and what you know traffic to your website. But for someone who doesn't understand, what is the key to having you know a high-ranking website? Um, I mean, not to be cute, but the fact that you and I are doing um, this podcast from our homes because we have uh, been forced into a reality that is predominantly digital potentially speaks to the importance of ranking highly. Now more than ever, your digital presence is important and 
your digital business strategy is your strategy. I think that the broader and wider your reach, the more successful you can be. Now, that's not to say that if you drive visits to a site, they will convert, not at all. But statistically speaking, uh, or number-wise, the more people you drive to the site, the more likely you are to get the type of result that you're looking for, with conversion being the example. Okay. And I know a very integral part of Similar Web is this ranking. So would you be able to give us a look or a behind-the-scenes view, if you're allowed to, how exactly you guys are getting your info and how that ranking works on uh, Similar Web? For sure. Yeah, we'd be happy to. Um, I, I like talking about our methodology because I think that it speaks to our unique value proposition. Um, I think that by having, quite frankly, an unrivaled blend of digital signals that is collected across desktop, mobile web, iOS and Android, uh, we manage to differentiate ourselves from other companies in the space. Um, these digital signals, I'd say, can be categorized into four main pillars, uh, partnerships, public data sources, anonymous behavioral data, and first-party uh, direct measurement. And I'll say a little about each and try to sort of bring it all together. Um, we'll try not to bore people to death, so we'll keep it short. <laughs> you know, Wait. if you can entertain me, which so far you are, and I am the least technical person in the world, you have the attention of everyone, because if I get it, then anyone does. Okay. Okay. Ooh, good to know. Um, I will try to keep it short, but obviously, if there are any follow-ups, my actually my email is available. My email address is available on my LinkedIn profile. Okay. Awesome. Um, so the four pillars. I'd say the first one is partnerships. Right. We partner with providers that aggregate usage data across website and apps. Uh, these include internet operators and measurement companies that collect uh, data points on audience behavior. We obviously carefully vet our partners to ensure they uphold the same high standards of compliance and user privacy as we do. And that has different implications for different countries. Being a global company, we have to adapt for privacy laws differently um, in each territory. Um, outside of that, there are public data sources, uh, an aggregation of online information which is available to the public. I say that similar to how search engines like Google index the web, SimilarWeb employs an automated technique for capturing and indexing public data from over a billion website pages and apps every month. Um, from there, we can cover anonymous behavioral data. So behavioral data collected from an anonymous panel um, is one of the many endpoints used in our advanced machine learning algorithm. Um, and I think the final piece when thinking about measurement is actually first party direct measurement. So we leverage a growing data set data set of websites and apps that share their directly measured data with us through platforms like Google Analytics, as we mentioned. Uh, the direct uh, measurement data enables us to uh, forecast and predict what website behavior is going to look like based on past behaviors. So without as the foundation, everything else that I measured from partnerships through public data sources and anonymous behavioral data can input into those predictions and extrapolations and remove any biases and skews. How do we bring this all together? Uh, we make these key insights um, on peer companies and the market available through what I think is a very intuitive UI that is digestible and actionable. Um, the market intelligence platform can show you where the market is going and uh, what it is that you could potentially be doing about that. 
So hopefully that um, answers your question. And for any of the bigger data geeks, I'd be more than happy to dig into some of the details further. Uh, yeah, so I think, and I definitely want to get into some of uh, more of the data. I would love to focus because what I think is so phenomenal is the first party data because SimilarWeb has grown to a size where companies actually want to be giving you that first party data, correct? Yes, oh. this is very true. <laughs> okay, so can you walk me through that and why you guys have people literally knocking on your door saying, hey, you know, log into our, you know, however, and see, you know, analyze our traffic and whatnot. I think that the first part of it is just the world of advertisers and uh, publishers, which in today's reality is um, all encompassing. You don't have to be from a certain industry to partake in this business model as either an advertiser or, by the way, a publisher. Um, the challenge that advertisers and publishers have is there's a gap that needs to be filled by an objective third party. Advertisers need to know that when publishers say, this is my reach and this is the quality of my reach, that that's been vetted by a company. And publishers want to be able to showcase proudly their um, online achievements. In order to do so, they need a technology like SimilarWeb to... Um, be that bridge between the two. So publishers uh, have a big incentive to make sure that they their data is publicly available through our platform because it helps their conversation with advertisers. And we've seen that a lot of advertisers that leverage that um, are, you know, inspired to, to see that connection and are encouraged to do so themselves a majority of which are customers of ours, to be honest. And I think that also having first party analytics and third party analytics all in one place can um, streamline and simplify the user experience. So I'd say the first part is a byproduct of the advertiser publisher industry. The second is the overall user experience of trying to engage with a technology um, like ours. And then there's sort of the, the long tail of, you know, mixed reasons that companies find themselves um, doing this uh, for whatever reasons that, um, that, that they um, factor in. But I think the, the, the first two are the main reasons. Okay. You mentioned a lot um, the world of publish uh, publishers and advertisers, and I know that SimilarWeb, excuse me, is a, is a very big tool um, for advertisers as well as publishers. Um, I would love to understand how that came to be and why that is. Why are advertisers so often looking to you guys? What do you offer them that keeps them coming back? So um, I referenced this in the beginning, but I'll say it again. I always used to like to say that you can um, articulate the value of market intelligence in one word, and that word is context. I think that one of the main things that keeps advertisers and in general companies coming back to us is the ability to contextualize performance. Again, if you're only looking at your own data, you are driving down a road where there are no other cars, and that isn't a reflection of reality. So I think you're, the ability to measure your piece of the pie and how that shifts over time 
is incredibly important. The business intelligence industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. We all have um, come to terms with the fact that we need to know everything about our own business and our own customers. Market intelligence is just the natural evolution of that, saying now that you know everything about your business, how does that compare to either specific competitors, companies you aspire to be, or the industry as a whole. And that shifts daily in today's reality. So that alone is good enough reason to continue coming back to the platform. And that's without actioning that data, as I mentioned before, from a marketing perspective, optimizing um, SEO, maximizing spend efficiency from um, SEM or display perspective, um, keeping your diverse set of um, affiliates, you know, um, up to par and, um, you know, thinking about your content strategy, uh, general brand reach, like all the things that tie into action should be based on data and not just your own. And that's part of what SimilarWeb um, offers. And that's a an advanced perspective following that very, very initial piece of just having context. And that context doesn't just matter to marketers. If you're a salesperson, your ability to prove yourself to be a trusted advisor to your prospects and customers by knowing everything about their business, knowing everything about their, their industry, that is also rooted in context. If you're an investor and you're trying to understand how certain companies are going to perform either on the public side or the private side, you can only get answers to those questions within um, the realm of context because singular analysis is only going to take you so far. Okay. So maybe this might seem a little um, dumbed down, but I, we are on a podcast and I would love if you can kind of walk me through an example. Let's say I am car brand X, right? I'm car brand X. I'm new. I want to compete with Tesla. I'm thinking, okay, I got this crazy thing. Let, let's go for it. I could take on Tesla. How does that, how would I use SimilarWeb in order to understand what my competition is, how I need to scale and things like that? It's a good question. Um, the first thing that you would do is you would uh, log into our platform and you'd input your own domain, Tesla's domain, and potentially a few other competitors. You'd start by measuring market share, right? So mm -hmm. if it's you and three other competitors, one of which is Tesla, the four of you are the pie in that analysis. What is your piece of that pie and how has that shifted historically and you know, as you go through the analysis, you're also going to try to predict or optimize how that is going to look looking forwards. Um, after measuring reach or piece of the pie, as I mentioned, you're going to try to qualify. So let's say you have 20% of total traffic that is going to the four websites, including yourself. You now need to ask yourself, is the traffic of high quality? The way to measure quality of traffic um, is classically done through uh, time on site, pages per visit, and bounce rate. I'd say the first two are more controversial or at least open to interpretation. So for example, for some websites, longer time on site could be a good thing, <coughs> publishers, but for other websites, longer time on site could be a bad thing 
food delivery is a good example. And for the auto industry, which we're discussing, it could be either way. If you are trying to establish, establish yourself as a thought leader and are generating high quality content, then you are potentially optimizing for time on site. And depending on the structure of your site and the pagination within it, potentially pages uh, viewed as well. Given that it's up for discussion, I think the easiest way to um, qualify your traffic is with the third metric mentioned, which is bounce rate. And the way that SimilarWeb defines bounce rate is a single page view visit. When you log onto a site, do not interact with it, and then exit, that is what is considered a bounce. And in 99.99% of the cases, that is a low quality visit because obviously no interaction occurred. The only example that I could think of where a bounce isn't a bad thing is if you are a single page view site. But honestly, if you're a single page view site, you're doing it wrong. So <laughs> I think that it's fair to say that you want your bounce rate to be low as possible. So after measuring your piece of the pie, you're going to be asking who has the highest quality. Now, apart from it being important for your analysis and potentially being an input into a further measurement, e.g., um, here's my portion of visits, and now I can calculate my portion of unbounced visits, so only visits that incurred at least one interaction or at least that second uh, page view within a visit, it can also, also point you in the right direction, the so what, as I like to call it. Um, because knowing that you're doing better or worse than a competitor is important. Uh, I think that, in fact, it's critical, but it doesn't necessarily result in action. For that, you're going to have to dig in deeper. And then let's say you find that Tesla has the highest, biggest reach and highest quality of traffic. You can then figure out how. How are they doing what they're doing? Um, and that means that digging into the different marketing channels. So... Um, what is the SEO strategy, SEM, affiliates, uh, display, everything that I mentioned before. You don't have to go through every single channel. I think the, the biggest bet is to focus on the top one or two where your competitor is doing a very good job and then trying to learn from what it is that they're doing. Are they building very engaging content? Are they releasing it um, in a high enough uh, a frequent enough cadence to uh, make an impact? Are they tying in their PR partnerships with some of this content strategy? Are they repurposing um, you know, something that they're doing on display with some of their affiliate partners? You can really dig in and connect between the dots to see how it is that they're doing what they're doing. And I'm not saying that you should just mindlessly copy top companies, but you can certainly be inspired by proven methods to drive more traffic to a site versus going about um, the marketing optimization in the old school way of, you know, guesswork. So we, we try to remove that guesswork from um, our customers' workflow and as such save them um, a lot of time, a lot of money, but ultimately align with the KPIs that they're trying to optimize for, which is usually increasing traffic, increasing the quality, improving the quality of the traffic, and ultimately getting to a point of conversion, which, you know, the word conversion can mean different things for different industry. For an auto industry, it could be to, um, you know, fill in, fill in a form to be contacted about um, new releases. It could be um, 
anything along those lines. Okay. And you said, first of all, everything you just said, it, 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 I know it's sound, it, I know it's very complicated, but you did a great job of explaining in very simple layman's terms to understand what goes in um, to exactly what you guys are doing. Um, you did mention that, um, I believe you said it's time on website. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, time or, on site. Time on site. And you said it's a bit controversial. Um, do you care to explain on that? Why is yeah, it controversial? I um, yeah, I, I touched on it briefly. It's a good question. I think that um, historically, you used to hear things like, you know, more time on site is a good thing. Um, lower time on site is a bad thing. And it was considered a very black and white metric. And thankfully, that thinking has evolved. So I gave two examples that I'm hoping that uh, everyone can identify with. And that is longer time on site for a publisher is likely good. If you're engaging with a piece of content and reading through multiple articles and, and extending your time on site, it likely means that you are enjoying the content you're engaging with and um, the publisher is doing a good job with serving said content. The flip side to that is the example of food delivery. And I think that again, with everybody working from home, hopefully the example resonates. But when you go onto a food delivery site, you're not there to engage with the high quality content and get people's thoughts on different cuisines and recipes. You're there to put in a food order. And uh, for anybody who's been hangry in their lives, you know that the shorter time on site, the better user experience. And if you have long time on site, it could be indicative of something problematic like a confusing user flow um, or just an overall bad UI that is extending time on site and actually increasing frustration because people are there to get what they want quickly and for whatever reason, this, these are all assumptions, but for whatever reason, that is not happening. So I say it's controversial in the sense that it used to be pretty black and white. I do not believe that it's perceived um, as black and white today. And the fact that it's more of a discussion is a good thing because it shows that we've become smarter about um, metrics on, on which we we build entire businesses on. So it's it's good to have um, the discussion around it versus you know the the more um, approach of you know a dichotomy. Now this might be a very silly question, um, but I know the way I you know browse the internet. I might stay on a site and open a new tab, and then that page might be open, you know all day for a couple of hours. Is that factored in to time on site or is it what there has to be interaction with the user on the page? Yeah, so after 30 minutes of inactivity, a session ex expires. Um, and the reason that that was built into a lot of analytics platforms is exactly for what you're saying, to try to account for active inactivity um, so it doesn't factor into time on site. Um, a visit is measured from the first page view to the final page view. Remember that page views require interaction right. because you need to click through onto them. I will say, not to get completely off topic, but um, one of the advantages of using third-party measurement is that it's always apples to apples. Similar web um, measures all websites equally. 
Okay. The first party measurement isn't the same way. You, if you're setting up your own analytics through a Google Analytics and Adobe Omniture, whatever internal technology, maybe you've built your own, mm -hmm. you can define a session to be two page views. You can define it to be two minutes. You can define it to be whatever you want. And then a lot of the time you'll see companies sharing reports about their performance and it, it doesn't always fully align or make sense it's because they're allowed to call the shots and define the definitions and i think the advantage of third-party measurement platforms is that you have a place in which you can truly compare uh, companies uh, websites apps in an apples to apples fashion that I think that's super important, and I'm glad that uh, excuse me that someone's doing it. And I think again, as I said just a, a few moments ago, that you did a really really great job, and I really do understand exactly what it is that Similar Web um, is doing. And I kind of want to take down in a bit of a different direction um, for the rest of the time we have. So it seems to be that Similar Web has had this meteoric rise um, in your space, right from you know, an early startup to one of the world leaders in the field. And I know from us speaking before and doing a little research that, you know, you have at the same time also been able to position yourself to really climb through the ranks very impressively at Similar Web. Um, so I would love to touch on those two points and kind of get a sense of how you did it, um, which is incredible, and also how Similar Web has been able to just build and build and build. Uh, well, first of all, thank you. It's very nice of you uh, to say. Um, I think I'll start off with with the similar web journey and then try to to weave in my my personal experience into it. Um, so, similar web to your point is an uh, is an Israeli startup founded in Israel today, very much a global leader in the space and a global company. Uh, we are. Quite frankly, everywhere, which is, uh, which is kind of nice. Um, how did we do what we do? I mean, I think some of what I'm going to to say is going to sound like a cliche, um, but I will say that cliches are cliches because you know they're they're right things that have just been said too many times. Yeah. Um, I'd say that the number one um, factor into similar web success has been uh, talent management. So the company's ability to um, identify um, both culture fits and culture adds to the company and then nurture that talent over time and allow people like myself to grow within its ranks. And we have so many stories of people that have grown vertically and horizontally um, within the company and um, a company will only be as good as its people. I think that um, in my very biased perspective, SimilarWeb is one of the companies that um, un understood that early on and managed to use it to our advantage throughout the years. And looking at the amazingly talented people that I get to work with, I know that them being in the company and driving the vision and the mission and execution is uh, the main reason that the company has been successful. So that's the, um, the baseline. I'd say from there, um, pace of innovation. Um, I think that 
it can be tempting sometimes to rest on your laurels and maybe improve existing features versus trying to constantly um, innovate. And thankfully, and this ties into the people that we hire, of course, but thankfully, we've never been that company. We've always tried to um, surprise and delight both ourselves and, of course, our prospects and customers. Um, I'd say a, a key theme is also being customer first. When I think about our CAB, our customer advisory board, when I think about our agile methodology and how we adapt our roadmap, it's, it is very much driven by our prospects and customers. The best features, the best use cases, the best ideas that um, I've been witness to as it relates to our company and our product have always come from our customers and prospects. And I think that's probably the case for most companies. Uh, I am quite proud to say that we seem to listen and action it. And that's probably also been a key contributor um, to our success. Um, I could carry on, but I think that those three main things, you know, talent management, pace of innovation, and a customer first mentality are sort of the, the three key things that I can tap into when trying to explain similar web success over the years. Mm -hmm. From there, my personal story, um, I started working at similar web in 2013, uh, in Tel Aviv as one of the um, first salespeople. Um, I definitely had a lot of uh, very interesting opportunities in the company. I think that the pace in which we grew forced a lot of us to um, grow as well. And um, I think that with the with the the right leadership and the right mentorship, um, I was um, given a lot of opportunities and quite early on moved into management roles. I can't honestly say that I was a very good manager to start. <laughs> okay. Um, but I I am thankful for all my experiences because I think they have um, helped me to get to where I am today. Um, the biggest change in my career was being relocated in 2015 to New York to set up the North American operation, which felt like building a startup within a startup and, and building something from scratch, which um, allowed, you know, the hustler and me, more of the entrepreneurial side to, to come out. And uh, with it, a big confidence boost that I think that I needed in order to get sort of comfortable in my own skin and, and become the type of manager um, that I've always wanted to be. And I've um, been in the GM role um, for three years out of my almost seven year journey, journey here at uh, SimilarWeb. So it's certainly, um, I mean, in some perspective, it's been very, very quick, but on the other, I felt like I've, I've had the opportunity to sort of um, build into it or grow into it. Um, okay, so you definitely said something that piqued my interest. You went from the first or second salesperson in Summer of the Web in 2013, right? And then just two years later, you're hopping on a plane and opening up a New York office or the New York office, which how many employees are there today in New York? Um, in New York, uh, 50, 60. Okay. So that's that's very impressive. That it's it's a little like shocking. How 
you know, I would love to hear how that kind of happened because that, and then pick through the opening. I'm sure there's a lot of good stuff there about opening an office in a far, you know another country. But yeah, just going from salesperson number one to hey, we're gonna you know trust you enough to open our office uh, in the United States seems like that's a huge step in a good way. Um, it, it was a huge step. I didn't do it um, alone, obviously. I already referenced, but we, we've always had a fantastic leadership uh, team in place. It's gone through its changes, uh, of course, so not the same people necessarily, but um, I think it's it's an interesting point. I came into similar with management experience. So I think that helped with to um, ease into the concept of moving me from individual contributor role to a manager. But I also think um, that you know you have to start somewhere. So even if the the jump is pretty big, if you do it with the right mechanisms in place, a type of mentorship, um, you know frameworked around it, then you you should be able to give people a chance. Uh, I feel very, very lucky that I was given a chance to move into a management position uh, quickly, not to mention the relocation and everything um, that came with it. And I think it's a testament to the type of company that we are, that if you prove yourself to be a leader through action and not words, that if you are a top performer, that if you are uh, passionate about you know, being in a new type of role, you are very likely going to be given a chance to do it. Now, from there, you're going to have to work very, very hard <laughs> to make sure that everybody feels like it was a, a good choice, because if it wasn't, it's not the end of the world. You can always change decisions. But I think that from the point of being given an opportunity to the point where blood, sweat and tears are invested to turn the opportunity into success, there is a bit of that journey. Okay. So that, that I like I like the tips. And I think that I think it's good recognizing that hard work is definitely one of the biggest parts about it. Um, but I would love to hear, uh, as I said before, about you opening the New York office, because that seems daunting and exciting all together kind of at the same time. Um, yes, so I I moved here in uh, 2015. Uh, back then we had a VP of sales that I was reporting into and a COO that I was working very closely with that didn't move with me, but uh, especially in the first few months, uh, helped and, and invested a lot of time. Mm -hmm. um, I mentioned it felt a little bit like opening up another startup. We had to look for a co-working space. We started interviewing and trying to hire for a company that nobody at that time had ever heard of. Um, so that was interesting. And, and you start off your team of five people and you're trying to um, promote both your product and your brand in a relatively new territory. We had customers in the US before we set up a US operation, um, but it, it wasn't, first of all, it wasn't the size of brands that we have as part of our portfolio today. And even if there were some big companies, they weren't spending what some of these companies are spending with us today. Uh, and one is connected to the other. You need to have local presence in order to provide the type of customer experience that is required when somebody, when a company does invest in you. So um, we started off and it was all very, 
agile and scrappy. Um, we try to host happy hours and invite whatever customers or prospects we had in the CRM um, to drive conversations. We went to every event that was even closely affiliated with our industry. Every meetup or, or social media invite that we got was attended. Um, and it's, it's very much, you know, pounding pavements, knocking on doors type of mentality, a lot of cold calling and, um, you know, slowly but surely it's, it's started to pick up. Wow. Okay. So you really just went out there kind of on your own. How many people were you initially when you moved out to New York that were before you started hiring? Uh, it was me and one guy who was actually an intern at uh, SimilarWeb when SimilarWeb was only eight people, not globally, not just in the US like I'm describing, but in HQ many, 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 many years ago. Uh, when we realized that we were going to set up a North American operation, our CEO and founder called this person up saying, you have to be part of this. And luckily uh, he agreed. So it was me and this other person, the VP of sales and the COO that weren't living there, but were spending a lot of time. And then a couple months later, we grew to be, you know, a team of six people. And it felt at the time huge. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, you know, just, just goes to show from a perspective standpoint. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you brought up the word agile um, because Again, I was, you know, doing some research on you guys and initially, correct me if I'm wrong, the, the mobile and the app tracking was not something you guys were doing and then you moved into that. Um, is that correct? Correct, yeah. We used to be desktop only. It, it took us uh, time to develop into become a end-to-end -end solution. Okay. So, you know, you don't have to give away any trade secrets, but um, I would love your take on, especially, and, and you brought it up, how people are working more from home how you think that the market will change perhaps and what brands need to, you know, how they need to be agile when it comes to marketing and how you guys are going to be able to continue to stay kind of one step ahead of the game. It's a good question. I think the, first of all, the interesting thing with everybody working from home is that you're actually probably going to be seeing an uptick in desktop because as much as we all have ADHD and one hand on either our watch or our phone slash tablet at all times, we're all working from our computers. And maybe that's not that different from office life, but I think that it's potentially, we are less mobile is what I'm saying. So we are using less mobile devices. We're not jumping from meeting to meeting. We're not traveling for business purposes. So there are probably more hours just of us directly in front of our computers, what is considered the um, desktop channel. I'd say that in general, I think that um, working from home has um, changed a lot of uh, perceptions and engagement with things we used to take for granted, like brick and mortar. Um, a lot of our retail customers that for years have been optimizing for digital and have been trying to index towards being more online have been forced to become completely online. And whilst it's um, sad, the impact on the economy is, is undigestible and um, there's, there's a, 
a lot to lament in the middle of you know a global pandemic from a digital perspective i feel that a lot of companies cpg and retail in particular come to mind have been forced to accelerate plans that were already in the making uh, publishers, uh, publishing is another industry that comes to mind um, as it relates to optimizing for digital. And in general, I think that companies' ability to have a space on the cloud where they can conduct their business and not necessarily be beholden on um, real estate, prime locations, um, foot traffic, and, and things they don't have as much control over, could lead to good things because you have a lot more control as it relates to your digital foot traffic because that just requires smart marketing um, targeting your target audience with the right messaging. And that means, you know, listening to them and just um, delivering what it is that they're looking for. So the overall user experience can be um, improved and optimized and accelerating business plans that were already in the works as painful as it may be across key industries could actually prove itself potentially years down the line to be a blessing. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I've always had that thought where innovation, you, know, you really embrace it and it would be better if it wasn't forced uh, now, but um, the fact that companies really, you know, and you were saying the brick and mortar stores, the fact that they need to adapt um, and really get on board with you guys um, makes a lot of sense. And do you guys see any um, big overhauls coming uh, up? Like you, I know you did mention that you saw a shift or you think there's a shift going back to desktop, but do you think that there's going to be some radical shift coming forward in the next, let's say 12 to 18 months, something like that? Or you think besides the shift back to desktop will stay pretty level? It's a good question. It will be very interesting to see um, what's going back to normal, and I, I, I don't like that word much, but I, I think that at least it serves its purpose that everybody understands what I'm trying to get at. Um, I think that seeing what going back to normal will dictate a lot of the trends that we um, could potentially see. So how comfortable will people be going back to a cadence of business travel is going to have an impact on how you um, engage mobile versus desktop, for example. Um, the, the concept of being mobile ties into using mobile devices, obviously. So I think that that a lot hinges um, on that. I do think that we are going to see, I mean, I'm in New York and New York is in um, phase one now with uh, retail shops being open for curbside pickup, for example. And I'm seeing a clamoring towards that, not necessarily out of necessity as much as it is because it's different um, or because of sheer boredom slash fascination. So I think that with reopening of a lot of offline businesses, um, we may, may see a quick dip um, from online engagement, people looking to break their life in front of a screen. I don't think it will hold at all um, because it's just the world that we live in today. But I do expect to see a little bit of that shift before we see the shift back. Okay. Um, and kind of just to pick your brain that I have you before we go, I see 
again, this is just my opinion. There's a massive, or at least seems to be, there's a big shift towards streaming. And I think almost, you know, you have Twitch, which is blowing up. Um, the, for the, you don't know the, the, the streaming uh, gaming platform. And I almost think, I, I like to actually compare TikTok, which is blowing up, even though I don't use it. It's almost like people can sh essentially stream their lives. It's, you know, quick two-minute video, you know, excuse me, 20-second video, um, and you throw that up there. And that's it's almost like you're kind of streaming something fun during the day. Do you see people just streaming um, whatever is content from their house as being kind of a next wave of things that you guys really want to focus on and look at? Um, it'll be interesting. Tracking social media is uh, complicated from um, a technological perspective. Social media platforms are by definition walled gardens and like to be that way. Um, their whole business model hinges on their ability to exclusively see and own the data and then leverage it um, in ways that allows them to generate revenue. Um, I think that outside of, you know, my analytics hat on, uh, just as a, a consumer, I, I wouldn't even say that it's a next wave. I feel like we're already living that life between um, Instagram or Snapchat stories, um, TikTok everywhere, and uh, more and more people feel uncomfortable even going live using these types of um, channels. Uh, we are definitely going to see an uptick of this being the way that people communicate. Now, it's not that different than posting a picture or a worded message. It allows you to fit in more for less, and it um, taps into, I feel, some very fundamental uh, primal aspects of our conscience in terms of how we want to perceive the world, how we want to be perceived, um, how we, you know, develop under a spotlight, uh, how much we crave that type of attention. Um, I think it's 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 fascinating to be witness for it. You mentioned you not using TikTok, neither do I. But you know, as uh, as somebody who uses Instagram quite heavily, I feel like I'm a TikTok user because now it feels that most posts are TikTok related. So even if you're not officially engaging with the platform, the way they play off each other gives you that cohesive experience in the same way that you can read tweets on. Um, Instagram or see a TikTok video through, I don't know, Facebook, like it's it's all almost be, becoming merged into one. And the only thing that will scare me is that it will, it will all be owned by one company. Uh, so hopefully we're not moving in that direction. Okay. And as soon as we get to our fears and what scares us, I think this is a perfect uh, time to kind of wrap this up. And uh, thank you so much. Um, I'm really glad uh, we were able to put this together and do this. And uh, again, thank you. And I uh, hope everyone enjoyed the show. This is the Thought Leaders Podcast. All right, everybody. That is another episode of the books. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you enjoyed the show. Remember to subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us your comments and reviews. And new episodes will be coming out every Monday. So until then... Have an awesome week. This is 
the Thought Leaders Podcast.